Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Well, we've made it to episode eight, and I know I've said this many times, but again, I want to sincerely thank you for joining me. As I mentioned last week, on today's episode, I want to touch on three primary topics. First, I'm going to continue my story and discuss a couple of key moments in my second week in sober living. Next, I want to talk about interventions and some of the critical steps to take if you feel like an intervention is necessary for one of your loved ones. And lastly, I want to discuss the Daily Five and how it can help you deal with two of the toughest challenges you may face on a daily basis, anxiety and depression. So let's get started. So, it's my second week in my sober living home, and I'm finally getting my feet under me. For starters, I finally got a bed in one of the rooms. And more importantly, or at least to me it was, my parents actually decided to let me get my car from back home. And I know that was a tough decision for them, because once I had my car, I had complete freedom. But with that freedom came great responsibility. It's a lot like a kid in high school when he or she first gets a car. You can use that car to make good decisions and the right choices. Or I could take that car straight to the store, buy a handle of vodka, and get drunk as a skunk for the next couple of days. Just like I had done a countless number of times just a month before. And again, those first few days, weeks, and months are critical for anyone new to recovery. I know I sound like a broken record, but I can't stress this enough. Think about it. As addicts and alcoholics, we are still extremely fragile in this moment, yet we enter back into a life full of awaiting consequences that we built up and put off for years, sometimes decades. The broken promises, the stolen money, the custody battles, the court cases, the bill collectors. It really doesn't matter what it is because it's all relative to that individual in the moment. And I'm not saying this so that people feel sorry for us. I'm saying this to emphasize my point that the decisions we make in those first few days, weeks, and months of recovery are crucial to our long-term success. So while back then I just wanted my car, now I can appreciate their concern was truly just coming from a place of love. Now, in a previous episode, I gave you an overview of my sober living house. So now I want to take a few minutes and give you an overview of what my typical day looked like. I realized pretty quickly that I may not get another opportunity like this, meaning 90 days where I didn't have to work and I could solely concentrate on bettering myself. And I decided that's exactly what I would do. I was committed to using each day to try and better myself and piece together all of the shattered fragments my life had become. So each day I was devoted to accomplishing three things. Doing some type of physical activity like running or going to the gym, attending at least two recovery meetings, and helping others by either volunteering or helping people in the house get to meetings or go to work, because remember, not everyone had a car. So on a typical day, I'd wake up around 7, drink some coffee, bring someone to work, go for a jog after, hit a noon AA meeting, then head to the gym or do some type of volunteer work, then get ready to attend an IOP meeting. Now, you may remember me mentioning that at my house, you had to either go to school, work, or volunteer a certain amount of hours every week. Well, I was still on short-term disability with my job, so my only option was to find different ways to volunteer. Also, attending a three-month IOP program allowed me to stay on short-term disability, and with IOP, I had to attend three three three-hour meetings each week, which were held on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. So once IOP finished each night, I'd eat a quick dinner, hang out with the guys in the house, then get to bed and get ready to do it all over the next day. 
rinse and repeat. Now, you may also remember that another rule in my house was that you had to start working with a sponsor on a weekly basis. And to work with a sponsor, you had to actually ask someone to be your sponsor. And to me, this was a big decision. I know this is my own internal issue, but I'm not very keen on letting my guard down or showing any type of vulnerability to people, and that's exactly what you have to do with your sponsor if you want that person to be effective in helping you. You have to open up and share intimate details about your life, especially if you want to successfully work the 12 steps, and that's one of the key roles of a sponsor, guiding you through the 12 steps, especially when you're new to recovery. So for me, at the time, this was going to be a lot like asking a girl to prom or asking a girl to be my girlfriend, which I've never been very good at. Except this time, I'm not in high school and I'm not asking a girl. I'm asking a dude. And the pressure is on. Because now it's my second full week and I can't show up to the next house meeting on Sunday without a damn sponsor. Now, at this point, I'd been going to AA meetings in town for about a month because remember, I started going to AA meetings my second week in treatment, and they talked a lot about getting a sponsor while I was in treatment. So the courting process had been going on for about a month now, and I had my eyes on a couple of dudes. You'd meet different people at meetings, and you'd hear them speak at those meetings. So I had a general idea of who and what I was looking for. Now comes the hard part. Building up the courage to walk up to that person at a meeting surrounded by a bunch of other people and saying something like, so, like, you want to be my sponsor or something? Very Sebastian Maniscalco-ish. And I'm sorry if I'm making this sound ridiculous, but that's literally how I played it in my mind over and over and over before actually asking the guy. I chickened out at least two or three times the same way I used to do in middle school before asking a girl to slow dance at a sock hop to the latest Keith Sweat Jam. So, now, it's Saturday night, and the last meeting I have to ask him before our big Sunday house meeting. And remember, I have a fear of consequences, so there's no way I'm leaving this meeting without a sponsor on my proverbial arm. I'll never forget it. I sit down at the meeting, and I immediately start scanning the room. And the Saturday night meeting was huge, probably a couple of hundred people minimum. And usually, I was scanning the meetings for attractive females because I was still single and yet to contact anyone from back home. But not this time. This time, I was scanning for a male, a particular male. And as my eyes made their way across the room, I spotted him. Okay, good. He's here. So I looked away, but I immediately looked back. Uh Uh-oh. Did he see me just do that? Oh, God. He probably thinks I'm a big creep. Get it together, Jareth. I don't think I actually heard a single thing said that meeting. The next 60 minutes felt like 10 days. And with each passing minute, I knew I was that much closer to having to pop the question. So after what felt like an eternity, the meeting finally ends. Now, most people don't leave immediately after meetings. They generally hang out for a few minutes and smoke with cigarettes. So I knew this would be my chance. So like a lion stalks a wildebeest, I slowly yet methodically follow him outside of the meeting. In the same way the lion hides in the African brush, I lurk behind a sea of alcoholics and addicts, waiting for my chance to pounce. And finally, the opportunity presented itself. He was slightly separated from the herd, so I walked right up and said, Look, I don't usually do this, but you want to be my sponsor or something? (laughs) I don't know if I've ever sounded more awkward in my life. He had a bit of confusion on his face, it was so bad. But, 
Thankfully for me, none of that matters. It's a judge-free zone, and people are there to help themselves, but more importantly, to help others. He told me he was already sponsoring five or six guys, that little hussy, but even with his super busy schedule, he agreed. So there's that. I've got a sponsor. Talk about a relief. Now I can go to the house meeting tomorrow, and all of my initial requirements are satisfied. Now, I wanted to start working with him pretty quickly, because I wanted to start working the steps. And thankfully, we did start working together shortly after that because what happened next can't be made up. So, the next day is Sunday, and it's my first Sunday with a car. Now, I'm from New Orleans, so I'm a huge Saints fan, and I couldn't wait to watch the game. I actually had some buddies from back home that lived in the town I was at at the time, so I called them to see if they wanted to watch the game together. I got in my car late Sunday morning to head their way, and for some odd reason, I decided to check my glove compartment. And lo and behold, what do I find? An unopened pint of vodka hidden under some papers. Now, there's good news and bad news. The good news, I didn't immediately drink the entire pint of vodka. The bad news, well, let me explain. I could have easily thrown the bottle away immediately, but I'm an alcoholic, so in my mind... I thought that would be wasteful. Instead, I would give it to my friends when I got to their house in a few minutes. So I get to the house and they want to go grab breakfast before the game. We get in my car and I grab the vodka bottle and hand it to my buddy in the back seat. Here you go, dude. Merry Christmas. Now, that's where the story should have ended. But, fast forward to Monday night. Me and two guys from the house decide to go catch a meeting. We get in my car and start heading that way. As soon as we turn out the neighborhood, the guy in the back seat tells me to stop at the gas station, then proceeds to say he's going to walk home, he's all of a sudden not feeling well. Me and the other guy both thought it was strange, but again, we're alcoholics, so nothing is really all that surprising. We let him out the car and go to the meeting. When we get back home, there were five or six guys sitting in the living room acting like they had just had some type of tribal council meeting or something. I go to the kitchen to grab some dinner, and one of them starts accusing me of being drunk and drinking in the house. Now I'm completely caught off guard. I have no idea where this is coming from and immediately go into defense mode. I've done everything asked of me for the last six weeks, and y'all are going to accuse me of being drunk in the house? What I hadn't realized... My buddy, on Sunday, that was sitting in the back seat, left the vodka bottle in the pocket behind the seat. He forgot to grab it when he got back to the house. So now, this guy finds it when he gets into my car to go to the meeting. And they had it sitting there, on the coffee table, in the living room. And I was like, oh boy, I'm gone. So I immediately call my sponsor and let him know what's going on. I was in full panic mode. How would I ever explain this to my parents? No way they believe me, because remember, I lost all trust with them, and I didn't earn that trust back in a measly six weeks. My sponsor tells me to calm down and call the house manager, so I call the house manager and he immediately comes over. I explain the situation and plead my innocence, but again, he's been doing this for years. He's heard every excuse under the sun at that point, and I've only been in the house for a couple of weeks. So he gives me a breathalyzer and examines the bottle. It's clear that the seal isn't broken and the bottle hasn't been opened, and it's also very clear that I'm not drunk. He explains the severity of the situation, and not just related to me, but to the others in the house. Having alcohol in my car or on the premises could have triggered someone else to relapse. 
I apologized profusely. Thankfully, he let me stay in the house and let me off with a warning. But again, this goes back to my point about critical decision-making early in recovery. I could have easily thrown that bottle away, yet I made a ridiculous justification on why I shouldn't. And even though it wasn't for the purposes of drinking it, my decision to not throw it away almost led to a catastrophic consequence. And catastrophic consequences are the exact key triggers you want to avoid early in recovery. Because those can and will lead to drinking and drugging again, no matter how committed you are to sobriety. And with that being said, I think that's where I'll end my story for today. Now, I have plenty more stories to share from Sober Living, but I want to shift my focus to something that I think can be very useful, if done correctly, to alcoholics or addicts and their loved ones, interventions. Most people have an idea of what an intervention is, and while most people have never experienced one, I would assume many people have seen a form of one on an episode of the show Intervention or a similar series. And while what you've seen on TV is a popular style of intervention, I want you to know that interventions come in all shapes and sizes. Now, I've been involved in a number of interventions over the last five years, so I wanted to take a few minutes to explain the most critical steps to making an intervention effective. Because if done correctly, the results can be amazing. And if done incorrectly, the results can be disastrous. First and foremost, seek help on the front end. Professional help. Consult a social worker or intervention specialist who at a lot of times is a former alcoholic or addict themselves. You can typically find one with a quick Google search. Get a complete understanding of the process on the front end, the pros and the cons. And if you really want to increase your chances, and this should go without saying, pray. What better intervention specialist than God himself? Just ask my parents. It seemed to work for them. Next, organize your intervention team. Typically, these are close friends and family members, maybe even co-workers. And I hate to have to point out the obvious, but make sure none of those people struggle with their own substance abuse issues. I'd also recommend having a recovered addict or alcoholic there that can offer hope and empathy to that person during the intervention. Now, after you've got your team, come up with a plan, date, time, location, what the process will look like the day of, and most importantly, what will be said on that day by each person. Next, and one of the most critical steps, gather information. Learn as much as you can about the person's substance abuse and their history, and research facilities best equipped to treat your loved one and those issues. Everyone's addiction is different, and every treatment center is different. So do as much research as possible on the front end to identify a facility that can best meet your loved one's needs. Now, you're going to want each attendee to write an impact statement. These should be personal statements detailing how the addiction has harmed the person reading it. They should come from a place of love. What they shouldn't be is a personal attack on that person. And while reading their impact statements, they should also offer help to that person throughout their recovery process. Let them know that you'll be there for them each step of the way. Now, the toughest part will be setting boundaries. You have to be prepared to offer realistic and uncomfortable consequences moving forward if that person decides to deny getting the help you're offering. 
and you have to be willing to follow through on those consequences. Now, this may seem redundant or unnecessary, but I think it's critical to rehearse the intervention before it actually takes place. There are so many variables that can arise the day of, so the better prepared you are, the more effective it can be. And some key things to avoid during the actual intervention are using labels like alcoholic, addict, junkie, as well as avoiding high emotions. Try to manage your own personal emotions during the process as best as possible. And again, the most obvious thing to avoid, conducting an intervention while that person is intoxicated. That rarely ends well. Remember, this is about that person overcoming substance abuse. It's not about anyone else. It's about showing love, not lashing out or shaming. And if planned correctly and done effectively, this could be the catalyst for one of the greatest life-changing transformations a person can experience. And the transformation isn't just limited to that person. Watch what it does for you and your entire family. It can be life-changing for everyone involved. Okay, so now that you've gotten my two cents on interventions... I want to shift my focus again and give you my 10 cents on the topic I love most, the Daily Five. And specifically today, I want to talk about how the Daily Five can help a lot of people with their toughest battles, anxiety and depression. And honestly, I can spend an entire episode talking about this. But today, I just want to give you an introduction into my thoughts and processes. Now, while anxiety and depression are two completely separate issues, for a lot of people, they tend to go hand in hand. And while I'm obviously not a doctor or a licensed therapist, I have battled with both issues on extreme levels due to my alcoholism and can speak from experience on how I've effectively managed both over the last five years and continue to do so each day. This isn't meant to be medical advice. Let's call it words of wisdom. Now, I've gone down a deep rabbit hole of research and reading related to self-improvement over the last five years, so many of these so-called words of wisdom aren't actually my own words, but words and techniques I've read about written by the same doctors, philosophers, and professionals that I'm claiming not to be. Now, anxiety and depression can take many forms, but I'm going to use a simple quote to explain what they both mean to me, and that quote is this, If you are depressed, you are living in the past. If you are anxious, you are living in the future. And if you are at peace, you are living in the present. I love the simplicity of those words and the power in their illustration. So let's break it down. And I'm going to start with the first portion. If you are depressed, then you are living in the past. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the past. That's where all of our awesome memories and incredible experiences reside. The past also shapes the people we are today. But... It's also where all of our traumas and demons live as well. So how do we balance the two? Well, for me personally, I realized that I had to face all of my demons and past traumas and use them for motivation to create more positive experiences moving forward. My alcoholism is a perfect example. I could use it as a crutch to manifest a woe is me mentality. Like, why God? Why do I have to be an alcoholic? Look at all the issues it created for my life. And now I can never drink again. Look at all the people that can drink without repercussions. Why me? Thanks a lot. Or I could use my alcoholism and all of my past issues to say, Thank you, God. Thank you for giving me those experiences because they made me the person I am today. And I am better for them, not worse. And I'm going to use all of those past traumas and experiences to help others. Like Mark Twain once said, Good decisions come from experience. Experience comes from making bad decisions. 
I just needed to shift my way of thinking. And some people may say, well, it's easy for you to say now, look how awesome your life is. Of course you can deal with depression now. Yes, that's true. But think about my life five years ago. It was a shit show, but I had a decision to make. And I decided to focus on using my traumas as motivation instead of allowing them to paralyze me with misery and sadness. Now, some people may further say, well, my depression doesn't come from my past. It comes from what's happening to me currently. Well, even better. That's where the Daily Five comes in. Don't like your current financial situation? Well, what are you doing to fix it? What is your plan? Feeling overweight or unhealthy? Well, again, what are you doing each day to improve your physical fitness? My point is, is that we are quick to adopt a victim mentality or run to a doctor for help when there are little things that we can do each day to help improve our situation and minimize our depression. And I've mentioned this before, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time and effort. And I've seen it work for others, so I know it can work for you. Now, for the second part of that quote, if you are anxious, you are living in the future. Simply put, anxiety is a fear of the unknown. We all experience it, because life will always present us challenges that we aren't expecting. But what do we do in these moments of anxiousness? Do we let our mind dwell on the what if? Let me tell you two techniques I've learned through reading. When I start feeling anxious about something, I immediately ask myself one basic question. Is this something I have control over in this exact moment? If the answer is yes, then I immediately start analyzing the solutions. And if the only viable solution is giving me anxiety as well, then I use this technique I learned in a book. Just try it. Trust me, it works. Has anyone ever come to you with a problem that they're really concerned about, but to you, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, so you offer them this great advice and tell them it'll all work out? I bet you have. Well, use that same technique with yourself. Offer the advice that you would give someone with the same exact problem, but remove yourself from the equation. Remove yourself from the situation emotionally. Offer the advice as if you were giving it to someone else, then replay that advice back in your head and see how the scenario will potentially play out. It may not make the situation any easier, but I guarantee it will minimize your anxiety in the moment. And that leads to the second technique. If it doesn't make the situation any easier, find the opportunity in the challenge. Like, man, I really don't want to deliver this bad news to my client, but once I do, this weight will be lifted and I'll be more comfortable delivering bad news in the future. And you can substitute this example with anything that's relative to your life. Again, like with most things, it's just a shift in mindset. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that I asked myself, is this something I can control in this exact moment? Well, what if it's not? Well, that's where being at peace is living in the present. If you can't control it today, then there's no reason to worry about it. You're just wasting time and energy. What you should be doing is using that same time and energy to focus on the daily five. Go for a run. Read a book. Say a prayer. That way, you become the best version of yourself. And when the situation does present itself, you're best equipped to face that challenge. Like the great Roman leader and philosopher Marcus Aurelius said in his meditations, Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. As always, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do me a huge favor and take a second to share a comment on the Apple Podcast app on your way out. And for additional daily content, 
Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Recovery Road Podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next week for Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. Mm-hmm.